Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1949 film, The Third Man. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Barrett, um, this one I knew I was going to love uh, before we started because this is a movie I've always wanted to see and uh, just never have. Um, and uh, I won't, uh, I'll just spoil it right now. I adored this movie. I loved it. It was great. It's so good. Uh, what is your history with The Third Man? Well, I think The Third Man is part of my uh, ongoing, uh, often mentioned obsession with Orson Welles. I mean, you know, I, I was interested in the film probably back in high school uh, when there was pretty awful prints available. So I did not see it in kind of the beautiful 4K restoration that we saw here. But I must have seen it somewhere back in high school and most likely given that time period, uh, probably on late night TV for what, for what I can recall. So would that have been the... David O. Selznick, like American cut of the film? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I cannot recall because I certainly have a very clear memory of Carol Reed's voiceover at the beginning, but I cannot recall if I had seen the, the Selznick one or not. That's a good question. So, so we should say, uh, just yeah. to give some, some clarity to that question, <laughs> um, when this movie came out, there was, uh, there was the basically the European cut of the movie. And then uh, David O. Selznick, who was the American producer of the film, this has film has three producers. Um, he had the film recut for American audiences. And do you have a sense of what he did? What, what, what was different about the, uh, the American cut? Well, I, I, I know that the, the main difference I'm aware of, and I can't remember the details now, but the main difference I'm aware of is the, is that opening narration that I know that that was cut. And I don't remember, and I think some of the opening footage may have been cut as well, because, you know, the film begins in a kind of a, it's really interesting, begins in a kind of a documentary style, and then it kind of shifts to fictional style. And I know that Selznick had something, to, but I don't recall exactly what he did. Well, and what's interesting is in the, the American cut, it's Joseph Cotton doing voiceover, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. right. Yeah. And in the Graham Greene uh story to go with this it's through the eyes of the trevor howard character right right major so, calibre is the narrator in the novella yeah right so so lots of different takes on yeah. uh, on how to do this now one of the things that i found most interesting about this film or very interesting about this film um is that a lot of the things that we've watched uh as part of this podcast have been re have had uh major kind of auteur narratives to them that this mm. is like the vision and work of one person and this movie uh whether it's i mean whether even auteur theory is fair or not because movies are inherently collaborative in that way this movie does not have an auteur narrative but rather has a pretty amazing collaboration narrative lots of different kind of big people involved in putting this movie together and having very unique um contributions yeah, well, and, and, and you've already alluded uh, already, Sam, to one of the uh, very interesting ways in which that's the case. So you have David O. Selznick, kind of the, the quintessential American producer, and Alexander Korda, uh, a European producer. And it's because of Alexander Korda's involvement that Orson Welles was involved in this film, because Korda and Welles had reached an agreement in 1946 that Korda would fund three of Welles' films, which actually never, never exactly worked out. But that's why, that's why, that's really why Welles is in the film. Um, whereas Selznick wanted, depends on who you read. Um, uh, Ebert says that Selznick wanted Noel Coward in the Harry Lyme role. Another source I looked at said he wanted Rex Harrison. So it's, it's interesting that this film emerges out of these kind of 
competing voices. Uh, and, and even Graham Greene himself, who's responsible for the screen, the screen uh, play, because what, what Greene Green did was he wrote the novella. This is kind of an interesting process. He wrote the novella in order to then write the screenplay. Uh, never planning to actually publish the novella, although later it was published. But he has a, not to spoil things, but he has a different ending in the novella. Um, and he and, and Carol Reed got into, a, and Selznick got into an argument over that. But for once, the, uh, uh, the writer lost out, and he later conceded that the ending that Reed and Selznick wanted was actually a better, better ending. Right. So, so if we're thinking about these collaborators, I want to spend a little time with, with each of these. So you talked about um, Corda basically brought Wells to the table. Uh, David O. Selznick brought Joseph Cotton and Alita Valley to the table. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are so, cause so, so these are part of the, like, why we have these producers as well is that they're that they all have different chips that they can kind of bring to make this movie. Um, but I want to talk about Carol Reed and Graham Greene uh, specifically. Um, I was interested because Carol Reed is not when 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 I hear people talk about great film directors, Carol Reed's not a name that I was familiar with. Although when I looked at his filmography, I realized oh I've seen some of his movies. It's just not a name that um, means a lot to me. Who was Carol Reed in 1949? Yeah, uh, uh, Reed was kind of at the height of his powers and reputation in 49. He had just done a couple of other films that are still fairly highly regarded, Odd Man Out and The Fallen Idol. Uh, and so he was he was kind of, I mean, I, I, that was sort of his uh, career peak, actually, uh, in 49. It was the biggest hit that he ever had. And the film has been named both the greatest British film of all time in one poll, and it came in second in another poll. So it's a film that's really stood up. But most people will say that it's kind of an outlier for Carol Reed, that this is sort of the best he did, and then he never really came close again. Although I have a very soft spot for Our Man in Havana, which he made about 10 years later with Alec Guinness. Uh, well, I recommend that. Right, because what's interesting is, so Reed, this, is, this film wins the BAFTA Award for Best British Film, and it's the third year in a row where a Reed film has won that. So... Mm -hmm. At least within within uh, the within British circles, he's the most successful uh, mm -hmm. director in that way. Um, now, the films that I have seen of his uh, before this are films that are very different than this. Which is he he won an Oscar for directing Oliver in nineteen sixty eight. I also uh, have seen his uh, The Agony and the Ecstasy when I was an art teacher. Mm -hmm. I used to I used to uh, I'll be honest show that film to eat up some class time when I was teaching. <laughs> Uh, ninth and tenth graders art appreciation uh, and there were some great images of how frescoes were painted in that movie so that was my my argument for why we watched that movie but these are not thinking about those movies i would not have expected that he would have directed something like the third man well i think it's also the reason why you know there's another kind of um canard about this film that orson wells was actually responsible for much of the direction and there's there's very little evidence on that that's one of those myths that People keep exploding and it keeps persisting. But one of the reasons why it does is because the film seems to be so, so much more um, interesting and kind of inventive than anything else that that Reed did. And so I think people are kind of trying to figure out, you know, why why did that happen? And they'll even name specific camera movements. And they'll say, you won't see this in any other Reed film. There's a, there's a point in the film where they're in... Um, uh, her apartment and the camera pushes out through the flowers to look at the street below and somebody points out that's such a typical Orson Welles uh, camera movement but uh, so I think that's why that, that you know I think that, that that's why it's sometimes seen as, as much a Welles film as a Reed film but it, it really isn't I mean it really is what Reed wanted to do. 
Well, and it's interesting. Uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. Um, this was one of those films where I had the, the whole weekend to watch it. And I was like, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch everything on Criterion about it. And then I realized there is hours of stuff <laughs> on Criterion about the third man. So I did not watch all of everything they had, but I did watch quite a bit. Um, and there's a, an interesting uh, kind of interview with Peter Bogdanovich yeah. um, about this. And he talks was talking about that very thing where even Wells is saying, no, Carol Reed directed this movie, not me. But uh, Bogdanovich does say that it is definitely a child of mm-hmm. Citizen Kane. Like it is definitely in, like visually inspired by um, interesting things that are happening in Citizen Kane. And he says, well, actually, there's lots of 40s movies that looked at Kane and thought, well, how do we do what what he did? Um, so so I wonder if even having Wells on on set, um, although Wells was not on set for yeah. this movie, but, but even the uh, the notion of having Wells on set, maybe even pushed Reed in a particular direction or to up his game in a particular kind of way. I, I wonder about things like that. Yeah, well, actually, I'm glad you said Wells was as elusive to get on the set as Harry Lyme was in the in, in the movie. Corda kind of chased him around around Italy and Europe for a while. He he'd been living large on Corda's money, and uh, as Wells was wont to do, I, I I would mention a couple of other uh, Wells films that I think are visually um, influential. Uh, and one, of course, is The Stranger, which is kind of a lesser Wells film. A lot of people don't know, but it was a film that Wells made in '46 to kind of prove to the Hollywood studios he could make a film, a good film under budget, and he did. And in that film, he plays a Nazi uh, uh, hiding in New England. And so there's a chase scene uh, in, in that film, not in a sewer, but in a clock tower. Uh, and then the other film I think that visually is very similar to uh, Third Man would be uh, also Wells' Lady from Shanghai, which is another film in kind of a noir uh, style. I would say that Third Man has a noir style. I'm not sure I would call it a noir, but it has elements of that. Um. Talk to me about that. Why, why would you say this is not a, a noir? I mean, well, it definitely has some of the pieces, but not all of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, maybe I'll, t- maybe I'll walk that back, Sam, because if I started to tick off things that I'm looking for from a noir, I would say this film has, has many of them, right? We have, a, we have a kind of femme fatale, I suppose. We have, an, we have a detective figure. We have all the visual markings of, of, of noir with uh, sh- the use of shadows, the use of low-key lighting, uh, we have maybe a very important element of a lot of noirs, not all of them, but many of them are their post-war hangovers. Uh, and certainly this is a film that's, uh, I mean, it's explicitly haunted by, by, by the war. Um, I, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know why I said it's not, I don't think it's a noir. I, I guess I do think of it as, as a noir, except there's a kind of... Um, uh, I don't know, there, there's a kind of a European attitude in, in, in this film that doesn't seem quite noirish i don't know i i i can't be more definite than that absolutely and i i would say one of the things that i wrote in my note this is the reason that i'm pushing back on that is i felt like this movie helped me solidify what i think noir is um <laughs> in certain ways in, in part because it's like i feel like i've seen enough now where it's like oh i get it I, I now now i think i get it um especially i think the narrative where it feels like you have this person who's kind of out of their depth trying to track something down and realizing this goes deeper than they think it's going to go. And it mm. twists back. I mean, it, it reminds me, we talked a couple of weeks ago about um, when I watched uh, the long goodbye as yeah. a, as another kind of noir. And it's like, it, like it has that feeling of like, you're kind you're with this guy and you're really seeing this through his eyes. 
uh, mostly, but there, there are just these moments where it's like, you think it's headed in one direction. He thinks it's headed in one direction. And then something gets revealed and you, and, and the world kind of explodes around you and you realize, oh no, this is going in another. So, so it, it twists in that way. Um, and I don't know that, that all of them do that, but that feels like, like a part of one of these stories. Cause it is sort of pointing, keeps pointing you to the shadows of the world to say, oh, there's more going on here than you think. Yes, and, and, and yeah, convoluted, convoluted plot, plots, complicated plots, uh, plots in which there are many things that the, that the, the hero or the, the protagonist doesn't get. Uh, as you describe that, I think actually of Ch a film like Chinatown, uh, where Jack Nicholson's character thinks he knows what he's investigating, but it turns out he has no idea. So the other, uh, the other big collaborator is somebody that I was far more familiar with, um, uh, who is Graham Greene. Yes. Um, so I know Graham Greene as a novelist. The End of the Affair is one of uh, a novel that I absolutely love. Um, so I was really interested to think, like, wow, he was a he was a screenwriter. Mm. Um, and, and and I will show my bias here. Uh, this is one. Um, it, it's I wrote in my notes: Is Graham Greene overqualified to write screenplays? Which shows a bias in in terms of how I think about writing. That like Graham Greene is a novelist. He was a two time shortlisted for the Nobel Prize. What is he doing writing screenplays? But then I did a little bit of research into kind of this time period. And I was like, who are other like, like great writers who wrote screenplays? And I found John Steinbeck and William Faulkner and mm -hmm. F. Scott Fitzgerald. And I realized, oh, actually that kind of makes sense at this time. This, I, I'm assuming that there was an increasing heightened sense that this actually may be a medium for uh, for for a writer as well, for even a great writer, or it's a paycheck. I don't know which uh, which is the case, but um, I felt a little better about Graham Greene realizing, well, he's in good company because there's a couple Nobel Prize winners in there too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I think the pay has a lot to do with it. I think there's this image that you're going to go to Hollywood and uh, and you're actually going to make more money than you would churning out books. And and as you alluded to, a fear that you know film is becoming so popular, maybe people are going to stop reading. Uh, and also, I think, you know, I think that there's also an illusion when you're a novelist like a Faulkner or Steinbeck and even a Graham Greene, there's probably an illusion that it's easier to do these screenplays. You know, they're they're short, they're formulaic. I can just churn one of these things out and I'll, I'll be I'll be all set. Well, and what's interesting is when when I, I mean, I look at those those writers and it's like those are those are four writers that I love. And I looked at the screenplays that they've written. And actually, this is probably the best one of them in terms of there's a lot of stuff where it's like, oh, that's yeah. stick to novels. This is not your thing. And you realize like, well, screenplay is a different kind of art. I mean, there, there are definitely, you know, amazing William Goldman style screenwriters. Who, oh, I guess Goldman's also a novelist who, mm -hmm. um, who writes screenplays, but, but that it is a different kind of art. But I think uh, this screenplay in particular is pretty great. Oh yeah, and 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 you know, and, and Green himself dabbled in spycraft, uh, and so he actually he 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 knows what he's talking about uh, in, in the screenplay. Absolutely. Okay, so one more collaborator before we get to thinking about even actors as collaborators, uh, and you you warned me about this, um, and that is uh, Anton Karras uh, yeah. and 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 the zither, and I got to say I loved it. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 as I said last week, uh, Sam, I think the zither is a make or break. I mean, either you go for the zither or you do not. And uh, it was very, and, and that was also Carol Reed. Carol, Carol Reed had a very, he had a very clear idea of what he didn't want for a soundtrack. He didn't want any kind of lush, lush orchestral arrangements. And then he, he happened upon Anton Karras, who was completely unknown at the time, 
Uh, and actually, Karis, you know, really kind of resisted being a star. He briefly became a star. The third man theme was a huge international hit. Uh, and Karis said, I never wanted to, to I never wanted that. Um, but yeah, that was, that was Reed discovering Karis. And when he heard that, he knew that's, that's what he wanted. And uh, Karis initially said, I don't know how to write. I don't write music. I don't know how to compose. And they kind of, uh, uh, Reed kind of had him in London and kind of wouldn't, wouldn't let him go home until he finished the, uh, the score. Now, what was interesting is when I first heard the zither, I was like, this feels a little too maybe jaunty for like what I think this movie's gonna be. And and it doesn't stop being that way, but it kind of becomes perfect somehow. Like it's it's like a little magic trick. I don't know. I don't it it, sh- it feels like it shouldn't work. It doesn't it feels like it doesn't fit, but it actually kind of fits perfectly. And I can't quite understand why that is. Well, I I, I think it's a couple things. I I, I think it conjures up I mean, it's a, it's a very uh, European sound, if I can say that. And, and, and I think it conjures up a certain kind of pre-war gaiety about Vienna. At the same time, I think it, it echoes or suggests Holly's initial approach, this kind of jaunty, self-confident, I know exactly what, I, what I'm doing here. And then as the film proceeds, I think what it offers you is a great ironic, it becomes kind of an ironic treatment of the action. So as the action gets darker and darker, this kind of jaunty music continues in the in, in the background, and I think it becomes it, it kind of adds it, it adds a layer of of uh, of tone and emotion to the film. It's interesting what you say about the 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 music um, kind of matching the the Holly character of like going in with this kind of confidence and then realizing that he's sort of out of his depth. Uh, that actually actually makes me think about what we were saying about. Uh, great writers going to Hollywood a little bit too of like, <laughs> yeah, I got this. And then realizing eh, maybe not um, a couple of the actors that I want to talk about before we get into uh, before we get into the, um, the, some of the plot and some of the moments in this, uh, this, this movie, um, because I think they're also part of this collaboration. So uh, we've, we've seen Joseph Cotton before. Uh, he's one of my favorite parts of Citizen Kane and he gets to be center stage in this movie and uh, one of the things that I, I felt walking out of this now, Cotton had a long career, was in probably too much stuff. Um, right. But like, why was he not bigger? He's I love Joseph Cotton. I, I just like he I'm just curious. Why is he not a why does he not become a like a mega star like other people we see in the, the 40s and 50s? That's a, you know that's that that that's a good question. Um, and and as you, as you I, I, this is actually probably the biggest starring role I can think of for Cotton. Um, he's usually in a very large supporting supporting role, as he is in Citizen Kane or as he is in uh, Wells's next film, Magnificent Ambersons. Um, it, it, it's it's hard it's hard to say. I mean, what is you know what is star power? Mm-hmm. Um, and I I I don't know. I don't. I haven't got a good answer to that. I agree with you. Every time Cotton shows up, I'm I'm really happy to see him, but why the, he didn't seem to be the kind of person that people would build a film around. I mean, even when you think about the third man, right? Who do people associate with the third man? Oh, that's Orson Welles' film. Right. Welles is on screen for about 10 minutes. Uh, Cotton's on screen for almost the entire film. Uh, right. and, you know, I, I will say this about Cotton. He's a wonderful actor, but he's not a charismatic actor. Um, I think he's an actor, and this is not a knock against him, but I think because he is an actor who disappears so easily into his roles, I think that that makes him in some ways less less magnetic. Now, there are plenty of other actors who disappear into roles that sure. have starring careers, um, but there's something about Cotton, I think, that he 
he he moves easily into the background. That's a really good observation because I was trying to think of like who does like who do I think he could have been and and you're right he lacked so the, the name that came to mind because like I think Joseph Cotton I think he's a good dramatic actor he strikes me as somebody who could be very funny and actually <laughs> is funny in Kane and in this at times um and so this I'm way overshooting with this comparison but like there are elements where it's like wow why was he not like Tom Hanks but mm. you're right I think he lacks a little bit of maybe some of that that magnetism I, uh, I, that, that makes I think, him stand out a little bit. I think, I think it's, I, you know, because I think about chameleonic actors who are big stars. I think about Christian Bale or Johnny Depp. But then I think about chameleonic actors who are great supporting actors, like a Michael Stolberg. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's the category I would put Cotton in. Um, I, I think he's great at that. Uh, a couple others. Uh, Alita Valley. I don't know that I've ever seen her before. She's great in this. Yeah, she uh, she did about a hundred films in her career, uh, which lasted until two thousand and two when she was in her eighties. Um, I I will also say that I I scanned her filmography, and I think there's very few films I have ever heard of, except towards the end of her career. She was in some Pasolini films. She was in uh, Dario Argento Suspiria uh, in seventy seven, which is one of those horror films I've actually never seen. She was in a couple of Bertolucci's uh, uh, films. One French critic called her uh, a great actress on the order of uh, Garbo and Marlena Dietrich. So does she do a lot in, in Europe, of Europe? Yeah, more, yeah. Okay. She, does, she does a lot in Europe. Um, she, does, she does a number of English-speaking films as well, but I have to say not a single one stood out as I looked at the filmography. One of the things that I loved about this movie um, was, speaking of, of different languages, was that there is not a word that is subtitled in this movie, but there is a lot of uh, mostly German, I think. Yeah, it's all it's, you know, yeah, there's a little bit of Russian. It's mostly German, so it yeah. kind of taxed my rusty German from under my undergraduate days. Well, it was it was fascinating because I, um, I we we've talked before about how uh, you know when a great film sort of puts you in the position of the character, like because Joseph Cotton's character Holly doesn't speak German, he's wandering through trying to figure out and constantly asking people what did they say, what did they say, and it's like you get that as well because you also don't know what they say. And I saw on one of the uh, features, uh, special features on Criterion, they showed this uh, one of the scenes with, um, with the landlady mm-hmm. where she's, cause I, cause she, all of her dialogue, I think was just uh, ad lib. Like they, they, mm-hmm. she was just, just doing, she's a great actress. Um, but they had it subtitled in this little featurette and it was so much better not knowing. I mean, what she said yeah. was great, but it was so much better. And I didn't learn a thing from her being subtitled because <laughs> I understood everything about what she was emoting, what she was frustrated by as she was trying to, te- to talk to people who didn't speak German as well. Uh, and I, I, I really loved that choice. Yeah. Cause it, it's all about the emotion. And, and, and that's all you need to do is you just get the emotion. And I think another important thing about not translating the German is it also, it's one of the ways in which the film uh, pretty consistently deflates Holly Martins. Um, and and, and, I, and I, I guess we should also point out that in Green's original story, uh, that character is also British or English. He's not an American. And that was one of the changes for the film. But, you know, he has that very... A classic, stereotypical, ugly American approach. He arrives in Vienna. He's made no attempt to learn any German. He just assumes people are going to speak English to him. Uh, Anna keeps warning him about, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And he's like, you know, I'm not going to pay attention to what's culturally appropriate or inappropriate or even dangerous. 
So I think the fact that we, like him, don't understand what's being said kind of both gives us sympathy with him and at the same time, I think, causes a little bit of judgment of him. Absolutely. Speaking of people giving him advice that he's ignoring, I loved Trevor Howard's character in this movie because I, it, it's it's one of those great pieces of storytelling where he's introduced, I think, and this is, this probably plays to Americans even better where you have this American figure who's, you know, walking into this situation, going to take control of this situation. And you have what might be seen as sort of this prissy British army guy who's kind of like trying to like keep him from doing anything. And you think this is a movie about how the Trevor Howard character Calloway doesn't understand what's really going on. And Holly's going to go in and explain it. And then there is that amazing moment when he's just like about halfway through the movie. He's like, well, would you like to know? Sit down. And he's, just, and he's like, get him a drink. He's like, I don't need a drink. He's like, you'll, you will. And then, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, actually Calloway understands everything. Mm -hmm. It's Holly who doesn't understand. Yeah. That was amazing. Cause he went from a character who, who I, um, in a great way was sort of annoyed by, cause he seemed like he was a roadblock to our, our hero. And all of a sudden I realized, actually, this is, I, this is a totally different story. And then he becomes, I think one of the really great characters in the back half when he takes Holly to the hospital, especially. Mm -hmm. and, and just the way that that scene is shot with so much restraint too, where you're, you don't get to see what they're seeing. So you can only imagine what they're seeing. Yeah. And, and, and Reed does that as a, as a sidebar, Reed does that a couple of times, right? Because when they open the coffin and discover who's actually in it, that it's not Harry Lyon, they don't show you who it is. They just show you the reaction of, of, the, of the coffin being opened. A couple, couple things I really love about that um, interaction between Martins and, and Callaway. Early on, he keeps calling him Callahan. And, uh, you know, Callaway is very quick to say, you know, I'm English, I'm not Irish. And it just highlights how much this film is about this clash of cultures and how amazing it is that you have this American, British, um, uh, European collaboration about a place where these various nationalities are trying to collaborate in the divided city, but not really succeeding very well. I, I also want to say as a sidebar, uh, this whole notion of the, the American is kind of clueless about what's going on. I would, uh, I would recommend uh, the Green Novel and films based on that novel, The Quiet American because he kind of re uh, revisits that. The recent film with Brendan Fraser is quite good. Um, and it's another version of kind of this green looking at Americans who don't quite know to bumble their way around the world, trying to be kind of the world's, the world's policeman. And then the, the, the last actor that I want to make sure to hit here, and there's plenty of other great actors and great performances is Orson Welles. Um, and uh, he described this as the perfect star part. And what he meant by that is that he's a character who for the first half of the movie does not appear, but everyone is talking about him. So when he finally appears, it is this major moment. And then the actual moment when he appears is so phenomenally uh, shot and just the smile on his face when the light comes across his face. It's like, it's just like a, a mega superstar moment. Um, and it made me wonder, um, does, does, how often does Wells act in things where, where he is Orson Wells actor only? He does a lot of that. Um, I mean, that's basically how Wells financed his career. Uh, he took all kinds of parts in all kinds of films, good films and bad films, 
just because he was highly regarded, especially in European films. He, a lot of his acting career in the late 40s, early 50s was, was in Europe. So that was, that, that, was a, uh, that was his main means of making money. As soon as he made enough money to start a film, you know, he would go off and, and film. And then sometimes he was doing it simultaneously. Sometimes when he was making Othello, he was simultaneously in some, you know, some European films. I, I also want to point out that not only does he have one of the greatest entrances uh, in, in cinematic history, but he's got a great death scene as well. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he kind of gets to do it all. He, and, and then in the middle, I mean, this is the thing that he did contribute to the film. That's indisputable, the, the, cuckoo, the cuckoo clock speech after they get off the Ferris wheel, that is, that is, everybody says that's, that's Orson Welles. Right. So wow. he gets that great moment, but he also gets the Ferris wheel speech, which is also great. Yes. And cynical. And, and yeah, and the, 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 what I loved is I had, if this is possible watching this movie, I'd forgotten Orson Welles was in it by the time we got to this point. Cause I didn't know what, which character he was. And I was like, why we've seen a lot of people at this point and we haven't seen him so I was, and I, and I, in, in my head, I just didn't think he was Harry Lime. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm just not that smart. Like I wasn't expecting that. And, um, uh, and what I also loved is I'm so conditioned to thinking about Orson Welles, either as Citizen Kane, Orson Welles, or old Orson Welles, you know, by the time you get to the sixties, kind of the, 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 the big more overweight Orson Welles or the Orson Welles you see in a man for all seasons, like that version of him. And to see him there, and he's so dashing in this movie, and you're like, it's like, this is Charles Foster Kane. This is like more of him. And to see him on screen with Joseph Cotton is amazing. There's, there's one other actor we have to mention, though, um, Sam, and that is Bernard Lee. Uh, Bernard Lee is the, uh, I forget his rank, but he's, uh, he's Calloway's right-hand man, the one that is, uh, he's a big Hollywood fan. And he is... He is M uh, in 11 of the James Bond films, so we just have to give him a shout-out. Very nice. Now, the, we, we haven't yet talked about what might be the biggest star of this movie, which is Vienna. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, that, that, that was my big takeaway, is, is Vienna is the star of the movie. And uh, it reminded me so much, and I felt, I felt uh, validated as I started to read things about this and people talked about kind of comparisons to Italian neorealism, but it reminded me of how Rome is the star of bicycle mm -hmm. games in mm -hmm. certain ways. Mm -hmm. I was like, this, I've never been to be Vienna, but I imagine if you, ha if you have, you would you would you would get the sense of oh my gosh i can't believe how much it feels like i'm in vienna here but especially vienna at a very specific moment in its history post war vienna thing i mean half the city's bombed out so they're you know they're between buildings that they're in and rubble right next to those um they're they're sets you could never build and they just they're filming on location and this is actually what the world looks like so i was i loved how um how Vienna was so central to this and, and, and how that setting was so important to it, especially the divided city and all of that. And I think that brings up one other really important collaborator in this film, and that is Robert Krasker, the cinematographer. Uh, Krasker was the first Australian cinematographer to win an Oscar for his work in, in this film. And he'd collaborated with Reed on a previous film, but so much of what's going on in this film with the use of the angles, the use of the, the it, it, it owes a lot in some respects to German expressionism. Uh, the Dutch angle, which is the, when the camera is tilted, uh, many, many shots in this film, everything is kind of off, off, deliberately off center. So visually, 
it gives you the same sense that again Holly Martins has being disoriented in this in this uh, place. In fact, there's a famous story that William Wyler, the American director, who was a friend of Carol Reed, uh, sent Reed a, a level. Uh, after watching the film, say so here, you know, Carol, use this next time to keep the camera straight. Uh, but of course, that's deliberate. And then there's a lot of. Um, I've been also thinking about, you know, you and I are scheduled to revisit Sunset Boulevard tomorrow, and I, I've been thinking about, you know, Norma Desmond's great line, "We didn't need words, we had faces." And so much of this film is about faces, right? You get these amazing close-ups of people's faces, sometimes at a Dutch angle, sometimes not, and the faces in this film are so expressive, especially the the Baron and the Doctor. I mean, they're they're okay, they're unattractive people, mm -hmm. and 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 then you get these close-ups of their of their faces, and it's um, it's very unsettling. Absolutely, and and what I what I loved about um, about thinking about Vienna was not only the 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 city but the shadows as well the way that mm -hmm. it's a you know they they sometimes they don't even need faces they just need shadows <laughs> yes. and how much of this this film is sh and you know part of it was uh for some of the harry lime stuff was they couldn't get wells on set so they you know like the the scene of him running away right um, is actually uh, i think the the second unit director or the assistant mm. director um they just had a coat and hat on him and yeah. you know and he's and, you know and 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 they were working on how to make the shadows look thing and that was almost an accident they noticed somebody walking down an alleyway and it cast this big shadow and they realized that's how we're going to tell the story so you get that and then you get that that then sets up the um visual joke maybe of the balloon man when they're at, mm. at their stakeout and you see a shadow coming again and you're like i've seen a shadow run away now i'm seeing a shadow coming and it is you know it is this old man selling balloons who's kind of getting in the way of the of the stakeout um so i i loved visually that stuff um i also just loved how this is a movie about an international city Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I will say, I guess I didn't understand Vienna as a divided city in the way Berlin was divided. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't realize that part of the history. So it was really interesting to, um, to think about, uh, kind of how that sets up. And this reminded me of another movie that I love. Um, and I was talking with Chris Gertz, our, our, um, European historian here at Bethel. And this is, this is one of his all-time favorite movies. And we were talking about how, such a great double feature for for students learning modern Europe would be to watch Casablanca and then this two <laughs> international cities on either sides of the war. One is very ends in this kind of very hopeful sort of way. This is this ends in a way that is uh, a lot less hopeful, a lot more <laughs> cynical view. Um, but both of them have this sense of it allows you to have this wide cast of characters from different places, sort of learning how people navigate officially and unofficially through systems. I mean, it reminded me a lot of, of, of Casablanca in, in that way as well. Yeah, and actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Sam, because uh, Ebert makes that very comparison in his in his uh, review of, uh, of the film. And uh, th yeah, there's a number of touch points between these films, and just briefly, and you know, another one is that Casablanca was another, I mean, that's not an auteur film at all. That's another film. That was a mess. That was a completely messy collaboration. Everything about Casablanca should have been a disaster. Uh, and yet somehow they created a masterpiece. I don't think that Third Man was disastrous in its collaboration. It was a much more successful collaboration, but still it's another film, as you said at the beginning, that kind of challenges the auteur theory because it really isn't a single vision. There's very much a collaborative vision at work, which is appropriate for a film about a city trying to collaborate. 
Absolutely. I want to talk about a couple other scenes that um, I really, uh, I really loved from this movie. Uh, the first is a is a, a lighter scene, but I loved the literary lecture, <laughs> and even the misdirect of you know he goes and he's looking for 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 a cab. And the, the guy at the hotel says, well, this guy will take you. And then he just peels out and you think, is he in trouble? Who are they taking him to the police? Are they taking him to the Russians? Who are they taking him to? And then the doors open and it's the lecture that he hasn't prepared for. And then he's just a total flop of, of a lecturer. And it's, and it's another one of those cultural clashes, right? Because uh, when he finally gives an answer to a, a literary influence, he says, Zane Gray you know, Mr. Cri Mr. Uh, Crabbin is like, oh no, no, he doesn't. He doesn't mean that. Those are those are just westerns. And so that's another way in which the film kind of plays with high and low culture, British and American American culture. Well, and 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 what I like about it is it is sort of like, and you had mentioned this before that you can think of Holly Martins as a character who writes westerns, but he's also an American character, almost from a western, who mm -hmm. has this kind of. Um, maybe more black and white understanding of the world, a good and bad understanding of the world is kind of saying, I am going to be the, the, the voice of justice in this moment and I'm going to figure things out. And he meets the murkiness of European modernism. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, or this is a different world. You know? and, I mean, and, and Callaway says that explicitly at one point, right? He says, you know, this isn't Santa Fe and you're not the sheriff. Right. Um, but again, that's, that's the American attitude, right? And, and um, we're, we're still having discussions about that as a nation, right? Should we be going elsewhere in the world and nation building? Should we be, you know, teaching people to educate on the American model or to have a government on the American model? We still, we still tend to think that way as Americans. Um, another scene, which I think is what, uh, the pivotal moment in the movie is the Ferris wheel scene. Um, and again, this is just one of those things where in the Russian sector, there was this uh, kind of closed down amusement park that they were trying to get back up. So you have this, it's this creepy, weird, you know, it starts with the Ferris wheel in the backdrop, and then they actually get up on it. And um, I can't remember what reviewer I was reading talked about sort of as the Ferris wheel goes up, it's like uh, Harry Lime's sort of threatening nature heightens and heightens and heightens mm. to the point where they're at the top when he opens the door, yeah. I was terrified because I thought somebody's fallen out of this thing. Somebody's getting thrown out of this thing, but I'm not sure who. Um, and then it, and then it sort of deflates as he comes back, as they come back down and he sort of makes the, a great, pretty uh, cynical speech about kind of, you know, uh, you know, governments don't talk about the people governments, you know, do this and this. And what's, what's, what's any different than that, than, you know, me looking at people as marks and mugs. Right. And, and he's, you know, and he's talking about like when you're up high and you're seeing, you know, just these dots on the ground, if I were to give you $20,000 for every dot that stopped moving, like how many could you afford? Like, I, I like that is a, a, a pretty powerful moment to think about how, Holly thinks he knows Harry and realizes not only does he not know this world he stepped into, but either Harry isn't the person he used to know, or he never really knew Harry. Or, or he's not able to extrapolate. You know, I think about the moment when um, Anna is asking him to tell her all, all he can remember about Harry. And, and, you know, and he talks about things like, oh, you know, he always knew the best crib and he taught me the three card trick. And so there's all these ways in which it's quite clear that the, the, the the fun that Harry was is actually um, represent actually shows that he is on an arc to the Harry that, that he becomes. And then in the Ferris wheel, Holly remembers all that time. You know, you got out of that. You know, you got out of that jam. You went out the back door and kind of left us holding the bag. 
Um, and Harry's got a certain amount of charm, but obviously beneath that charm is, uh, it's the smile of a shark, right? Um, but but, but he, he does raise a really interesting moral question, right? I mean, because when you run a government, you do make calculations about people's lives that way. You know, I, I think uh, to make an interesting connection, I think back to Dr. Strangelove and towards the end when General Turgeson is talking about, you know, a nuclear war, he says, well, you know, I wouldn't say we wouldn't get our hair must, Mr. President, you know, 20 million dead, but it tops. So in fact, governments do think about people like how many dots can we afford to lose? So there's a certain sense in which Harry's morality, um, we, we think about that as, as immorality, as an individual taking other people's lives, and yet we recognize that governments make those kinds of calculations all the time. Right. And I think that, that what, what I love that. And then that gets punctuated with the hospital scene where it's like, okay, yes, these are dots on the ground, but these are also, it's also this child here and it's this child here. And so you're, so Holly is, is forced to kind of reckon with what view of the world he, he's going to stand for. Because the other interesting thing is throughout this movie, um, Calloway is trying to get Holly to just take a plane home yeah and there's all these i mean i think there are at least three times when when he is on his way to the to the airport or the airfield and then something stops him and the one time with the hospital it's callaway who's like okay i have to make a stop you should come in with me so he at that point he's playing holly too saying well you actually have an, a direct connection to this guy that we're looking for so now i'm going to use you if you're if, if this is who you are yeah. And that, that is a, that, you know, and that, you know, get out of town, that is a classic noir tro trope, right? I mean, that, the detectives are constantly, when there's a detective, they're constantly being warned off, get your nose out of this business and, uh, or, or else. And it usually does turn out to be, a, a, it turns out to be a bad thing, whatever is going to happen. Um, so getting close to the end here, uh, the scene where um, Holly is trying to save Anna mm -hmm. is also a great moment because it's like our our hero, and I'm putting that in quotes at this point, right? Our hero is trying to take control of things. He's, I mean, it, it does. This actually reminds me of Casablanca too a little bit, where there's the the moment where Rick sort of is like, okay, now I'm going to take charge of this situation. And I'm going to do all the things to get them out and to do this, and it's like that fails too because he realizes Anna has no real interest in going and no real interest in leaving Harry. Yeah, it, it's yeah, it, it's it's one more way in which, first of all, again, Joseph Cotton, uh, he thinks he's taking control. He thinks he's doing the compassionate thing, um, but he actually doesn't really understand the nature of Anna's relationship ship to Harry. In part, maybe because he himself has come to a certain moral conclusion about Harry. Um, he feels a little bad about betraying him, but ultimately he doesn't. Whereas I think for Anna, she illustrates the complexity of, of, of love that we, uh, you know, that love is a, is a powerful emotion that can drive you even against your own, your own best interests. Um, it's also interesting to me too, Sam, in that it, it's, it's how the film plays with a very complicated moral sense, right? This notion that, um, you know, the Joseph Cotton character has this very kind of old fashioned right and wrong morality. And the film wants to make those moral judgments in some respects a little more complicated through the character of Anna, but at the same time still wants to assert some fundamental moral moral values. It, 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 it's again, it's that clash of that maybe that European sophistication and that American uh, brashness. Absolutely. And then we move to the sewer chase scene, which um, I couldn't help but realize you gave me two movies in a row that end in sewers, people running through sewers. I don't know how intentional that was, but, um, but uh, 
a, such an amazing thing to look at um, in terms of how it's shot and how the uh, complexity of the sewer system and all the running and hiding and twisting mirrors the plot of this movie um, where, where you're, you're in and out of shadows and you're unsure where you are and you're unsure where Harry is. Uh, and, and it leads to this moment then where, um, where Holly is sort of forced with the decision. He has the gun in his hand and he's looking at Harry who is trapped at this point. Harry's always been the person who's always had a way out. And there's that wonderful shot of um, what is actually Carol Reed's hands going up through the grate. <laughs> realizing I am stuck. And that is, it's a gorgeous shot. And it's a great image of like, this is finally, he, he is, he is imprisoned now he is stuck. And Holly needs to make this decision about, is he going to shoot Harry? Is it a mercy killing for Harry? Cause mm -hmm. the cops are there. They could just arrest him. Right. Um, right. So, so even that it has some ambiguity to what is Holly shooting Harry mean. And, and, and even though, yeah. And even though I don't think any of us doubt who actually fires the shot and who emerges uh, unscathed, it still is a nice, uh, it's a, it's a nice choice uh, to leave that suspenseful and not actually show the moment of, of, Harry, of Harry being shot. I would also say that that sequence, however long it is, maybe it's close to, it seems like it's close to 10 minutes. I really didn't time it. But I think that sequence alone is worth the Oscar for Krasker cinematography. Um, there's some beautiful shots. There's a one one critic I read in particular noted the scene. He thought it was kind of almost a beautiful scene where uh, Harry Lyme is making his way along that kind of little edge and uh, the water spilling over and he's dancing across. It's, it's also an interesting editing job because it's filmed. It's a combination of location and, and studio because Wells, kind of typical of Wells, uh, raised the stink about the stink. Uh, and didn't want to spend as much time in the sewers as Reed would have liked. So they had to do some studio construction as well. So apparently the way to tell, I, I saw this on one of the featurettes, the way to tell is if you can see Orson Welles' breath, he's in the sewers. If you can't, he's in the studio. Okay. <laughs> there's there's different shots where, where when he's breathing, you can either see it or not. And the, when you see his breath, that's actually that's actually in the sewers. And then this leads to the, the, the final scene of this movie, which is... Uh, amazing um so we have harry's second funeral um and then we have this this long shot now what i found interesting was um at the second funeral anna does choose to throw mm -hmm. dirt onto the grave which leads me to believe she knew harry wasn't dead the first time well I, I either she knew or she didn't want to she didn't want to close the chapter I, I, I think it's always very unclear just how much Anna does and doesn't know. We, we know by the end she knows a lot more than, 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 than she lets on. I don't think she knows it isn't him, but I think she doesn't want to close the chapter. Gotcha. Yeah. So then we get the final shot. One more trip to the airport on the way, and Holly, uh, they, they pass Anna walking through this gorgeous long, long shot, which we've seen at the very beginning of the film, the same road with the trees mm. on either side. And he tells Calloway to stop. Harry gets out and waits for Anna. And it is a long shot of Anna yeah. walking up towards him. And you're wondering, you know, okay, what's what's going to happen? And she just walks past him as the zither's playing. And you realize, once again, he has misread and does not understand the situation. And and, and Reed holds that final shot even after she goes by while he's working on the cigarette. Uh, another very noir prop, of course. Uh, and he holds that for so long. It's just, I mean, it, the timing on that is just... It's absolutely perfect. And again, as I said at the beginning, that wasn't the ending that Graham Greene wanted. And 
I, I don't I don't know how he could have wanted a happy ending. Those those, those two cannot be together. Uh, it just right. does, it doesn't work. There's no there's nothing that's happened up to that point in the film that foreshadows them being together. He's misunderstanding her. She she keeps calling him Harry rather than Holly. Um, there's no way that he can replace uh, Harry. And what I love about about Green though is that he admits Reed was right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Anything else you want to talk about with uh, with this this film? I, I guess uh, the only other thing I want to say is I just want to mention um, Roger Ebert has a wonderful line about this this film and his discussion. You know, because you and I often start, you ask me, you know, what's your history with this film? Uh, and I love what Ebert says about this. He says, of all the movies I have seen, this one most completely embodies the romance of going to the movies. I saw it first on a rainy day in a tiny smoke-filled cinema on the left bank in Paris. It told a story of existential loss and betrayal. It was weary and knowing, and its glorious style was an act of defiance against the corrupt world of picture. It pictured seeing it, I realized how many Hollywood movies were like the pulp westerns that Holly Martin writes. Uh, naive, naive formulas supplying happy endings for passive consumption. I just, I, I just, that's a very evocative. Uh, I love it. Passage, yeah. Um, and it, it, I will say the ending also makes me think about uh, the very first episode, the very first movie we talked about. And we talked about, you know, what happens on February 3rd and Groundhog Day. It's like, I can't help but look at that and think, what now, Holly? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether Callaway is going to give you another plane ticket at this point. Like, does he just like live in Vienna now? Like, it's it's this great moment of like, I, I just don't know what happens next to you. No, no. Neither, neither for him or Anna. It's hard to know. Right. Right. Oh, I, I loved, loved this movie. This is one I can't wait. Um, my daughter was out of town, so she didn't get to watch this with me, but I've already told her we're going to sit down and she wants to watch Casablanca again. And I said, this is going to be a great double feature. We're going to watch it on the big screen at home. Um, what do you have next for us? Well, that is the double feature, Sam. We're going to do Casablanca next. Yes, I can't wait. I love it. First of all, I haven't seen Casablanca in probably 30 years. And so I want to go back to it. But yeah, that the connection between these two films, you already made it. Um, uh, Roger Ebert had made it. I have another reason for wanting to do a Bogart film, which I'll talk about next week. Uh, but yeah, so let's do Casablanca. Oh, you could not make me happier with that because that's just that was on my list of things to try to watch this weekend anyhow. So mm -hmm. now you've given me even more reason to do it. Um, and that is a story that is a movie that has a really great story behind its making mm -hmm. as well. So mm -hmm. fantastic. Thank you so much, Barrett, for recommending this movie. I am a better person for having watched it. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is one that that will be in regular rotation in my life. Um, I absolutely adored this movie. Um, that is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Casablanca in the video store.